Hello and welcome to Catholic Bites, a podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Conrad, and I have with us today a uh, first-time guest. Uh, we're really excited to have Father Blake. Uh, Father Blake Britton, you're a priest of Orlando. Welcome to Catholic Bites. Thank you. Happy to be with you. And Father Blake, we're going to talk a little bit today about a topic which I think maybe people hear a ton about or heard a ton about, but like most don't actually know that much about, which is the Second Vatican Council. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Speaking from my own childhood, like my church history was like St. Peter, something happened in the Middle Ages and then Second Vatican Council. And now everything's different. And <laughs> right. uh, and I think that that's such a, a strange way to look at the council. So why do we have this this very weird vision of the council uh, today or, or maybe a, a, a disjointed vision of the council and its place in church history? Yeah, this is one of the main focuses of my recent book, Reclaiming Vatican II, namely uh, a reflection on what is called the Pair Council. Now, I did not invent that phrase. That comes from the famous uh, 20th century French Jesuit Henri de Lubac and his commentaries on the council in that 10-year period of its initial implementation. He recognizes very quickly that there is a disconnect between what is taught by Vatican II and what is promoted on the grassroots level by theologians who say that they are in the spirit of Vatican II. And that uh, divide just continued to grow throughout the decades uh, preceding and coming after the council. So we're now at this time period in church history where there are many persons who do not have an, an appropriate or a deep understanding of the council itself because they've been told what to believe about Vatican II as opposed to reading the documents and text firsthand. So having a firsthand knowledge. The results of this have been the development of various factions within Catholicism revolving around the council. On the one hand, you have the so-called liberal Catholics, and on the other, the so-called conservative or traditionalist Catholics. Now, we know neither of those kinds of categorizations are appropriate to the church. The church is not liberal. The church is not conservative in the political sense. Uh, she's Catholic. She, she embraces the whole of truth. She's in this journey on orthodoxy. But the liberals will say, of course, that Vatican II is year zero in the start of the church, and this is where we really need to uh, throw off the shackles of tradition and to really uh, to progress ourselves moving forward. On the other hand, you have the traditionalists who are critical of Vatican II because of many myth perceptions they think come from the council. In, in reality, they're not really reacting to Vatican II itself, but this false narrative, this paraconciliar, as Henri de Lubac calls it, this paraconciliar narrative about Vatican II and what it supposedly promoted. I'll give a real practical example that's, that's a hot topic issue nowadays, and that's Latin in the Mass. Vatican II did not get rid of Latin in the Mass. As a matter of fact, it's very clear that Latin must be, not should be, must be retained within the Latin rite, specifically within the context of the liturgy, so much so that St. Paul VI, who sometimes is one of the boogeymen of traditionalism, St. Paul VI he published a book called Hubilate Deo immediately following the promulgation of the document on the sacred liturgy, which he gave to every bishop and religious superior in the world as a gift, saying that they had the responsibility, the pastoral obligation to teach the faithful the Latin chants and parts of the Mass so they could participate in the Novus Ordo or the Missal of now St. Paul VI. So this narrative that Vatican II got rid of Latin is a false narrative, and it most certainly does not come from the Council, but rather from theologians and particular liturgists after the Council who used the uh, Vatican II as an opportunity to promote their own personal ideologies as opposed to the authentic to documentation and the vision of Vatican II. Yeah, I think that I, I had an experience in the parish one time where I said something about what Vatican II taught. And like I, I, I quoted the document 
And someone came up to me afterwards and said, it's clear that in seminary you were formed to be pre-Vatican II because right. you said this. And I said, no, I was literally quoting the Second Vatican Council. Right. And, and they said, no, no, that's not what the Second Vatican Council says. I'm like, well, you should read the documents. So why, why do you think it is that we just didn't have this uh, appreciation or, or why, why, how do these two different councils, how were they allowed to develop? Yeah, yeah. So there are really three origins to the pair council. What what constitutes pair conciliar? This counter narrative against Vatican II. What Delubac calls an anti narrative in a very strong language. First is what I dub the Council of the Theologians. So immediately following Vatican II, as I already mentioned, there were groups of highly influential and trusted theologians. I think of someone like Edward Skilibix who would go around giving lectures at seminaries, universities about Vatican II, but insert here and there little personal ideologies under the guise of Vatican II. One example is in a lecture that he gave in the 1960s on Lumen Gentium, the document on the church. He said how proud he was that the document uh, beheld the, the worldliness of the church as a sacrament of the world and that it's so much more open now to being with the world and to communicating with the world. The only problem is that Vatican II never defined the church as a sacrament of the world once. That phraseology is not used anywhere in a Vatican II document. On the contrary, Vatican II pushed away that phraseology, which upset theologians like Edward Skilibex, in lieu of the appropriate uh, phraseology, which is sacrament of salvation. And that has a very different theological emphasis and significance about the relation of the church to the modern world. That's just one example of many parlor tricks, if you will, or, or mm -hmm. ways in which theologians uh, utilized the Vatican Council as a way to promote their own ideologies. The second that we cannot underappreciate, of course, was Vatican II is the first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church covered by media, mm. specifically technological American media. And that's where we first hear in church history Catholicism referred to as liberal and conservative. Those are not ecclesial terms. Those are not appropriate Catholic categories. But what happened was because of the American media's coverage of the Second Vatican Council, they they looked at it almost like a football game or they looked at it as, as a political battle. So you would see writings in different newspapers. And part of my studies was looking at journal articles from you know New York, California, from different states that were very influential at that time. And they'll say, Cardinal Bea, who in their mind was a great liberal hero, quote unquote, mm -hmm. was today in, in conflict with Cardinal Tiovanni, who in their mind was a very conservative villain. And, and they cast it as if behind the walls of St. Peter's at Vatican II, there's these constant factions of liberal conservative, the liberal progressive heroic church that was trying to stick it to the man and the pope. And then you had the entrenched, closed-minded, rigid traditional church. But that's not the case at all. I mean, Vatican II is much more nuanced than that. Now, there were tensions, obviously, if you read the journals of the different parity who were present, like Henri de Lubac or, or uh, Karl Rahner, you'll see that there were conflicts, but not in the way of, of politics. It was cardinals, bishops trying to understand the will of the spirit. And it wasn't the first time that there were tensions amidst that. St. Nicholas famously punches heretics, right, <laughs> um, as the story goes. So there's always tension when the church is in development. But the media, of course, categorizes that as a political tension. And that remains till this day. And, and it's very dangerous. We need to rid ourselves as a church from the, the words liberal and conservative when describing politics within the church, when describing uh, progression within the church. It is inappropriate. And so... I think of the recent Amazon on the Synod, for example, where the liberals were saying Pope Francis is very liberal because he's promoting this and what have you. And the conservatives were saying that Pope Francis was doing X, Y, and Z. Well, Pope Francis is not liberal or conservative. He's the Holy Father. 
He's trying to work with the will of the spirit. Now we can agree or disagree with how that's going about, but to categorize him as just a liberal in the political sense or a conservative in the political sense is wholly inappropriate, as well as, as judging the Amazon and the Senate and all these different things. Uh, and then finally, one different categorization I have is the Council of the Age. Vatican II was summoned during a very difficult time in world history, the 1960s and 70s. It was implemented in the 70s and 80s. Uh, there are a lot of things going on. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, the arms race, the space race, uh, the civil rights movement. The world is in upheaval and tension. The world is also developing this idea of, of going against Western civilization, its traditional ideals. And this spirit of Vatican II, quote unquote, this paraconciliar narrative was embraced wholly, was very well received by the spirit of the age that, that saw this as an opportunity even to upheave the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and to re revive and renew the Catholic Church in its likeness and image. So those th three things together, in my opinion, are what constitute the paraconciliar narrative, and we're still being affected by it until today. Yeah, and I think that what you say is, is really fascinating when it comes to understanding what a council is, you know, an ecumenical council is a movement of the spirit, and that spirit right. is manifested through the debate of the fathers and then through the documents that they produce. And this external narrative is not, you know, really the spirit of that, the, uh, the council working through it. And, and I think, I guess the, the question I would have, and, and I think I'll, I'll probably lead you on this question, uh, is how do we recover a true understanding of, of the spirit of Vatican II, of, of what Vatican II actually taught? And I would suggest probably, and I think you would agree, is returning to the documents, the documents yes. that the council produced. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's essential to reclaiming Vatican II. We have to return ourselves to an adequate study of the documentation itself. I used to teach uh, middle school. And one of the things I did with my eighth grade class is anytime I gave them a book report, let's say on George Washington, or I asked them to, to write something on Dante's Inferno, it was not acceptable to go on Wikipedia or even to use secondary resources only. They had to go back and to read the inaugural addresses of George Washington, his journals. They had to go back and read Dante's Inferno and give me direct quotations. And that's the same thing for us nowadays when it comes to the church. We just can't go online and listen to a YouTube commentator or a podcast and say that we understand and Vatican II. That's not true. We have to enter into an active intellectual dialogue with the documentation itself firsthand. And then, of course, we can enter into a dialogue with secondary resources. And that gives us now the gauge by which to judge the authenticity of these resources or the disgenuineness of these resources. But our primary responsibility as Catholics, and we do have the more obligation, by the way, of an ecumenical council, especially since it's the highest form of magisterial teaching, we have the moral obligation to understand what the church says. We as Catholics do need to read Vatican II. That is part of being obedient to sacred tradition, which is one of the two fonts of divine revelation. So that's something else I don't think has been stressed to the laity in particular, but even among the clergy and religious, there are many of whom have not read Vatican II, and I don't blame them. I'm not being critical of them whatsoever, my dear brother priest and my dear brother and sister religious, but I think there's just... We've, we glossed over the significance of an ecumenical council because we've just taken for granted the narratives that have been told to us about it or the milieu in which we've been formed as millennials and Gen Z when we really need to go back and to read these documents firsthand. And I think we'll, it, it will paint a very different picture than the one we grew up with or the one that we've been told by external uh, resources. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, just from a personal note, that has been so enriching for me to go and, and read what the council actually taught because it's so dang beautiful. Like it's yes, really yes. beautiful. And and the council was responding to real needs in the church and real needs for reform and real 
real needs for articulation of the truth of the faith in a new way. But it did so in such a phenomenal way and such with such beauty and 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 such real depth of theological understanding and, and teaching. It's worth taking the time to see what did the council actually teach. And I think if some of our listeners decide to do that, like take up the 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 document on the sacred liturgy or take up the the document on the church of lumen gentium they'd be surprised at what they'd find and how yes. how incredibly catholic and beautiful it is yes and to to jettison that or to um to compare that to their local parish experience or what they've heard again from these secondary resources will be shocking and, yeah. and that was the case for me when i first read sacro sanctum chilium for example on the sacred liturgy which is one of the most contested aspects of our faith nowadays unfortunately ironically the document on the sacred liturgy was the first promulgated because it was the one that had the most amount of agreement in Vatican II. <laughs> uh, the other documents had much higher levels of disagreement, especially Lumen Gentium chapter eight, which was on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, one of the most fascinating developments of Vatican II that's so unappreciated is, of course, its ecclesiology and Mariology. But that was a very contested topic, whether Mary should have her own dogmatic constitution or should be part of the constitution on the church. And then, of course, the one on divine revelation, the relationship between scripture and tradition. But when it came to the liturgy, they were all on the same page. They're like, oh, yeah, this reform is needed. Even if you look at the founder of the SSPX, Marcel Lefebvre, he signed in the positive. He voted for Sacrosanctum Concilium. So that lets you know there's a general consensus of the reform of the sacred liturgy. However, if you read what was voted on in the reform and then you see what's experienced on the local level, a question mark will quickly come up in your mind. And that's what happened to me as a young Catholic, but also as a young priest. And I've, I've witnessed that disconnect. And it was encouraging in many ways. I know that for a lot of people, it could be discouraging, but the church is in development. John Henry Cardinal Newman speaks about that. You know, the church has an organic nature. She's a living body, and part of that is going through growing pains. It's only been 50 years. It usually takes at least a century for the full fruits of a council to take to take uh, root. So we have to be patient with this. But at the same time, it was encouraging because I'm like, oh my goodness, wait a second. All these things that I heard about Vatican II that were sort of bothering me and made me upset were not true. Yeah, <laughs> they're not true at all. You know, Vatican II didn't get rid of tradition. Vatican II didn't get rid of piety. Vatican II isn't just superficial, non-theological. It's deeply theological, beautiful, traditional in the in the healthy and proper sense. And also, it has this thrust. Uh, it gives us outstanding tools to bring that sacred tradition and beauty to the modern world in a really amazing way, as we see articulated in Gaudium et Spes. So I agree with you, brother. I think that it's a great resource, especially for a lot of Catholics nowadays, and, and we need to, to read them firsthand to really appreciate how magnificent they are. Wonderful. Well, Father Blake, thank you so much uh, for bringing us this message. Your book is called Reclaiming Vatican II. Uh, it's a great way to, to now first, as he said, read the, read the primary text, but, uh, um, but it's a great way to kind of delve into how we got to where we are. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll have you back on shortly. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. If you like this podcast, you'd like to find other great Catholic talks, you can find us at catholicbytespodcast.com or you can find us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Uh, thank you and God bless you. <laughs>